On Forgotten Gems, we look at some film festival favorites that initially received a lot of attention, but have either since fallen into obscurity or fallen out of favor. We're going to dig them up and relitigate. On this episode, we're looking at Leos Carax's first film, Boy Meets Girl, which earned the director the Award of the Youth Prize at Cannes and a nomination for Best Feature at the 1984 Chicago International Film Festival. But is the movie any good? Let's find out. Welcome to Forgotten Gems, a chance to rediscover festival favorites. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as always is the rabbit in my headlights, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm a rabbit in... Okay, yeah, that's right. I'm the rabbit in your headlights, Doug. That's I mean, a reference. Do you know the reference that I'm re- referencing? There, no, Liam? I don't, actually. It's actually the first time I ever saw Denis Levant, who is the star of this film, one of the stars mm-hmm. of this film, mm-hmm. uh, ever saw him in anything was for the music video for the Uncle song, Rabbit in Your Headlight, which had vocals by Tom York from Radiohead. Very, uh, I think Jonathan Glazer directed. Very, very commonly shown on Much sure. Music here in Canada and MTV in the States. Do you remember this? It's it's just uh, like a, a wandering, babbling homeless guy uh, in in like with cars rushing by and every once in a while he gets hit by a car. Do you remember this video? I do not at all. It's funny because you, you said uncle and... Um, what's his name? Tom York. Tom York, and those are two things where it's like, yeah, I should know that. That sounds right. And then I've seen a lot of the Glazer videos, so I feel like I should I'm know just it. Wondering what it's, yeah, but it I was, can't imagine. Yeah, I just wanted to confirm that it was Jonathan Glazer. Yeah, yeah, and he. It, I remember I saw it a lot when they released those DVD compilations. You know, there was the Chris Cunningham one and Michelle Gondry, and there was a. Uh, oh, I never. Glazer. Yeah, I never got any of those. I don't even know what those are actually. They were. I, I wish they continued with them. They were just these DVD compilations. I think they, they were called the director series of music videos, and they had a lot of extras and behind the scenes and commentaries, which is really cool things. Spike Jones had one as well. Did they have the uh, Rex and Effects? All I want to do is zoom, a zoom, 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 and a boom, boom. Yes, one hundred percent. Liam, it's been a Liam, it's been a little while since we recorded an episode of Forgotten Gems. That is true. It's been quite a while, actually. In fact, uh, as of the time that we're recording this, almost an entire year, in fact, I believe almost exactly a year has gone by since our most recent episode. There's a few reasons for that. Uh, one of them is nobody cares about Forgotten Gems. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. We know one person who cares about Forgotten Gems. Um, and, you know, uh, many apologies to that one person. Otherwise, it doesn't seem to be one of our more popular iterations of this show. And, and sensibly so that it's not popular, right? Because we're talking about basically, A, <laughs> the whole concept is, hey, this is a movie no one talks about or cares about. And B, uh, you know, there's it's a little difficult to make it interesting even for us because we don't know ahead of time whether we're going to enjoy it or not. So sometimes it's like, hey, does this deserve to be forgotten? Yes, it does. Oh, you want to listen to this? Why? Why would you want to listen to that? I, I, there's still, so you say that. But I, I do. do. I just said it. But I do feel like there are other shows around the same thesis that seem to do okay. And in fact, <clears throat> if I enjoyed the hosts of a show like that, <laughs> I would probably listen to that. However, there are two things. One, I don't know that we have a cult of personality the way that you would need to justify a show like that. And two, some of the shows I think that do that have a much looser definition of forgotten or yes, I think that's cult. actually a key thing. Yeah, they're often I, I, doing movies that are actually pretty popular, but but for some people, they're unknown. Yeah, exactly. And also, they, I think those other podcasts tend to be very genre-focused. I mean, we've covered a lot of, like, romantic dramas on this show, <laughs> which is a bit of a tougher sell for the kind of people that we spend our time talking to. I, You know this. We've said it before. I'll say it again. The The distance between um, exploitation and art house is way, way shorter than people make it out to be. Sure. And, and for me, you know if I was scheduling – my own channel, which God, that would be amazing. Let us get to the point where everyone could have their own movie channel someday, because that's what I want to do. And sure. uh, I would definitely go from, you know, um, 
Vice Squad into Babette's Feast. That's that's my vibe, Doug. That's what I want. You know, I yeah, want, me too. Yeah, me I too. want someone. That's, to that's sit why through... we have podcasts devoted to Jackie Chan and Alejandro. Chodorowsky. Yeah, I want someone to sit through a racer head and then watch, you know, uh, Hot Fuzz or something like that. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, I just want to bounce all over the place. And so that's how I sort of saw this. So it's been a while since we've recorded Forgotten Gems, and the fact is. Because there hasn't been a <laughs> extreme uh, amount of interest in regards to it, this is probably going to be our last episode of Forgotten Gems for a while. It's one of the freedoms that we have at Cinema Smorgasbord is that we can start and end podcasts on a whim. Uh, but uh, I, we did want to wrap it up because we did announce the film that we're going to be covering on this episode on our most recent episode a year ago. Uh, and we do like to keep our promises, don't we, Liam? We do. And I think it's a good way to sort of say goodbye to it temporarily we might come back to it i think um it's not impossible it certainly was a venue for us to talk about I, you know the thing is doug with the sort of podcast we do it's so much easier to talk about genre like we yeah. could start a western show we we do have one to talk about euro crime mm-hmm. we could you know i have a horror podcast on another thing it's those are such um Maybe easy isn't the right word, but they're comfortable, right? So this was an opportunity for us to throw ourselves out of our comfort zone, which I appreciate. But I actually think now with some of our actor-focused shows, we're already doing that. You know, yeah. with George mm-hmm. Kennedy, we're all over the place. That man did everything. You know, yeah. with Carol Kane, we've done a, a fair bunch of, of art house films, and we're about Absolutely. to move mm-hmm. into a whole bunch of comedy, which we we don't always do. So I just think we are getting opportunities to do a variety of things. And with this show, there was also the idea of, like, how do we pick? And it all felt a little too random. It felt yeah. like the rules of the game were not clear. And if we want to do this, something like this in the future, which we might come back to an idea like this, it will involve something a little more specific so that it doesn't feel quite as like we're just floating in a sea of movies that people may or may not care about. (laughs) There is something that you just brought up, this idea of it being difficult to talk about some of these movies, which is both the exciting part of this particular show and honestly also the frustrating, maybe frustrating is not even the right word. It it, it can be a little uh, intimidating sometimes to talk about some of these films, especially when we don't have a background in some international cinema, uh, when we don't have a background in some of the people involved. It is, you know, uh, the film that we're going to be talking about today is a good example of that to a certain extent. I mean, there are people involved that we have familiarity with, but in terms of the style of the film, it's a little difficult to talk about. So you're going to probably hear us listeners struggle a little bit, but I mean, that's for us (laughs) both part of the fun and probably part of the reason why people are not exactly tuning in in droves for forgotten gems liam what are the what is the movie we're talking about today uh it is a leos carax which i don't know if i'm saying that right leos carax leos carax movie uh, i looked it up last night just to be sure that i pronounced it right and then i forgot uh i'm pretty sure it's like leos carax yeah leos carax french right (laughs) yeah i I don't know cara maybe i don't know anyways it's called boy meets girl it's a It's um, a black and white film. I think it was his first one, right, from 1984? His his first feature-length film, yes. Yes, yes, yes. And it's got... uh, Now, I'm assuming this is Denis Levant. Is that right? It's not Denis. Denis Levant. Yeah, that's right. Uh, And who I was just recently discussing because on Cinepunks we covered... Beautrevay or Beautrevay, right. depending on how you pronounce it, and uh, he's in that film. And the, you know, I think of him as a very um, distinct personality as an actor, very and I so. think of him as being very much himself. And yet, I would argue the distance, which is not long in actual time, between Boy Meets Girl <laughs> and Beautrevay, <laughs> might as well be a chasm of centuries. The young man of Boy Meets Girl only vaguely reminds me of the. Uh, man in Beautrevay, which is very interesting, right? Because I yes. I would not have guessed that, but but man, this this he feels like a kid. And again, some of this might be performance, right? He's trying to give off that vibe, but he really feels like a child in this movie in many ways. I mean, he really is twenty three or twenty four years old. But you're exactly right. right. He went from this guy to within like four or five years to being like, oh, he's forty years old, and he's going to be like that for yeah. the next twenty years. <laughs> oh my god, yes. Yes, that's very true. And also to think this is the beginning, like the, this is um, one of the interesting things that, that will be hard about moving away from the show is that it did give us an opportunity to go to something that isn't in the conversation that maybe should be in the sense that um, 
you know, talking about Leos Carax, let alone uh, Denis Levant, is like very contemporary, right? With uh, yeah. with uh, oh, what's the name of the movie that he just put out? Annette is probably Annette. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, but even still, like if you talk about films that are not contemporary but are still in the conversation, Holy Motors. I mean, first of all, there mm-hmm. is not a streaming service on the internet that has not had a turn at Holy Motors. It's been <laughs> a featured movie from Tubi to the Criterion Channel to I mean, I, the, I think it hasn't been on Shutter, but that's the only one. Every, I watched it on Netflix. I know that, and that was yeah, a long time. Every ago. few months, it gets a, a feature on a new thing, and and that might sound like a dig. I don't mean it like that at all. I think they're really going out of their way to make sure people see it and for good reason it for a lot of people i know of a certain age that was their introduction both to denny levant and to leo's carx as a director and hopefully like me they they did a little digging to find out more about both those people right and um and i think that it's interesting to 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 think that here is a first film for both of them but i don't hear anyone talking about it very often no. Uh, but I do think the the problem with this sh- particular show that we do, uh, and with this idea in general, is you were saying about not knowing the context of the movies or the specific international context. I think that's true. Also, when I think about how these movies may or may not be important or in the conversation, I'm doing somewhat of a disservice because the conversation has changed, right? When we talk about the universe of film fandom, I think the combo of social media and just the internet in general – has forever changed that. There was a point where your conversations about film were either the local critic, right, or, or or national critic, and then people you knew in real life. And that was it. That was your whole conversation. Maybe you read a book about movies. Maybe you, like, you know, then later on you might find, like, a message board. But this whole thing today where, like, the the within hours of a film premiering, there are people talking about it all over the world, and some of them mm-hmm. – have deep film knowledge, and some of them walked into a movie for the first time today, and they're going to tweet about it, right? <laughs> that that's a part of our conversation. So, like, sometimes the very premise of this show doesn't really hold water because there's certain movies that, of course, they're not in the conversation anymore. You know what I mean? They, how would they manage to float all this time unless they had a huge audience when they came out? It is interesting that we we had a consistent thread through a lot of the episodes of this particular podcast, which is early films by later established directors. Right. Yes. We've done, we've done that a few times now and it is interesting sometimes when those first films don't get a lot of traction and, and whether they already show a hint of the style of the director or a hint of their, the, the material that they're interested in. But it, you know, that I do think we've been pretty consistent in regards to that. I mean, even we talked about the Denny Villeneuve film. I mean, these are movies that of course are talked about. They're not entirely forgotten, but certainly they aren't um, collected with some of their better known films. And there may be reasons for that. In some of the cases of the films we talked about, there's been good reasons for that. And uh, it'll be interesting to talk about this film to see if that continues that trend. This film was shown at Cannes, but not as part of the actual competition. It was part of a um, the the International Critics Week. They showed some uh, films of I think young directors um, uh, at this the twenty third International Critics Week, which happened basically simultaneously with the Cannes Film Festival. The Cannes Film Festival that year, nineteen eighty four, by the way, the uh, Palme d'Or went to Paris, Texas, by Vim Benders. Um, and honestly, the other films that were in competition, actually, I don't even call it competition. They were just screened and they were not actually put up against each other, though. <laughs> the fact that, um, that, uh, the, that Leos Carrick's won the director, sorry, the award of the youth prize suggests that there was at least prizes, even if they weren't necessarily in competition. I actually don't recognize any of the other films here, but again, that might be my own, uh, limited worldview, but a lot of international cinema that was also being played at that. But interesting, just because of how much of a critical darling Leos Carrick would become later on. What do you know of his career, Liam, outside of Holy Motors? Uh, well, to be honest, that was my introduction. Like I said, I'm sure it was for yeah, a lot me too. of people. Uh, and then I managed to find uh, uh, Malva Song, or Malvis, or Mal- I don't know how to pronounce it, but Bad Blood. It's I okay. found Bad Blood. In fact, no, no, no. I didn't even find Bad Blood first. There was a screening of Bad Blood at International House in Philly. Uh, brief uh, uh, note on that. International House, for people who don't know, is a actually like a dorm, but they had a theater in the dorm, and they oh, would do um, 
more artsy international films. Now, they got well-known because they became, for a long time, the home of Exhume Films. So they would also do oh, the okay. 24-hour hearth mm-hmm. on there. But when they weren't doing genre stuff, which is most of the time, they did all kinds of art house stuff, which occasional dips into like mainstream culture. And so they did a screening of that movie, and I caught it, and then I, uh, I, I thought it was amazing. So then I found it again... I think it. I think they actually had a DVD on Netflix, and I did a double of that and um, the Lovers on the Bridge, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's his other film, uh, yeah. and so I saw those two, and that's it. That's all I've seen. Those two and Holy Motors. I have, uh, you know, I haven't. I wouldn't say I've searched deep, but I've tried to find copies of Pola X and haven't found easy access to Pola X. I never found this movie, though parts of it felt very familiar. Like, maybe I thought I had... I don't know. Maybe I saw this. I don't remember seeing this. I, the only ones I really remember strongly, besides Holy Motors, and of course, Annette, which I caught like a lot of people did, were uh, Bad Blood and um, The Lovers on the Bridge. And that's it. And from just those two and Holy Motors before Annette came out, I am was in. I'm like, this guy's great. I think he's great. Now, I've heard Pola X is controversial. I haven't seen it, so I don't have an opinion. But I've heard people are kind of back and forth on it. And I think he has other stuff, too, maybe. But I don't know. I, I just know those three things very well. <laughs> not really. I mean, that's is the that thing. It? Is that the, the whole career? For is, it's not the entire career. He has a film called Mauvais Sang, uh, which came out in 86. Uh, Lovers on the Bridge came out in 91. He has some short films, but Pola X... Um, uh, Holy Motors and Annette are all of his other feature length films. Okay, okay. So, so yeah, you, you actually at this point. have yeah. yeah, yeah. You're pretty familiar. What of that work? Because I've only seen Lovers on the Bridge, Annette, and Holy Motors. Aside from this film, do you see any consistency in regards to his work? What What is he interested in? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think to some extent, the what I've seen. Uh, well, I guess now I've seen everything. Right? Is um. Uh, other than pull X, is he's interested uh, this is going to sound redundant but he's interested sure. in film in a way that comes across mm-hmm. in his films yeah, so like absolutely. in the way that you if you watch Spielberg and you know about serials and older films you can catch references to all this other stuff in the same way I, though I'm no expert on French New Wave Godard all that stuff there is an extent to which I'm picking up pieces in his films of love for film and in the mm-hmm. end that's what Holy Motors ends up being. Holy Motors is whether people all recognize it or not. It feels to me like the whole thing is about film. It's about yeah. filmmaking mm-hmm. and and film as it functions in culture and all that stuff. And I think elements of that interest in the medium as well as the art itself come across in the other films of his I've seen. Um, yeah, I think that's tr- I th- I think that's true. Again, this is where we feel a little out of our water. I it, I wish I was an expert on French film so I could really talk about all the places he's uh, connected to some of those directors. But I, I'm just not yet. It's it's still something that I'm I'm kind of a novice in. I mean, I think that's totally you know it, it, you can't be experts on everything. But also part of the reason that we're doing this is to learn about films and the and and styles of films that we're maybe not right. as familiar with. Yeah. In the Vincent Canby review of this film, Boy Meets Girl, in the New York Times, he basically said that when you watch this film, you're watching references to Truffaut, you're watching references to Godard, and you, you can barely hear the voice of Leo's Carrex in it. So the idea is that his voice is not, not coming through. It's all reference, right? It's all artifice without his voice. I don't know if that's necessarily fair. I'm, I'm interested to get your take on that. But, I mean, we're talking about references to things that we meaning you, yourself and myself, Liam, are not as intimately familiar with. So sometimes you may feel like you're missing out on things. But as we found in some of our other podcasts, including the Jodorowsky podcast, that's okay too. You can't yes. be expected to pick up on everything. It's also not our responsibility necessarily. And that doesn't mean that we can't enjoy it on other levels as well. Liam, I'd like to take a break. Let us come back. When we come back, we're going to talk about the film, 1984, Boy Meets Girl. You know the Elle est incapable de mentir longtemps, Florence. Tu comprends Ça m'a rassuré, franchement, que je le connaisse, lui. Même que ce soit mon meilleur ami, mon seul. Tu vas où T'aimes plus quand on parle Ben, va en parler ailleurs. When I live my dream, I'll take you with me. Riding on a golden horse. 
Leos Carax's brilliant feature debut follows the relationship of an aspiring filmmaker who has just been left by his lover and a suicidal young woman who is also reeling from a failed romance. It's Boy Meets Girl from the year 1984, directed and written by Leos Carax. Uh, we've already talked about Carax's filmography at this point. Starring Denis Levant as Alex. Again, Alex being uh, Leos Carax's actual first name. Uh, and Marielle Perrier as Marielle in this. Uh, so uh, characters playing analogs maybe of real people. There's a suggestion that Denny Levon is basically playing an analog of the director in this. Uh, and uh, it, it is a film, as we've already mentioned, it has, it's not really discussed as much in terms of Carrick's entire filmography, particularly since he has gotten a lot of attention since Holy Motors. And, and Ed, I think, uh, even though it wasn't critically beloved, it certainly was seen as like, oh my God, he's making another movie because, as we've already mentioned as well, not the most prolific director in the world. So with all that said, Liam, we've kind of danced around it at this point. What did you think of Boy Meets Girl? It, oh man, <laughs> it's it's... <laughs> It's not, it's an enjoyable film. It's something that I found uh, engaging. Um, and even as it went on and it got more and more interpretive, abstract, I don't know what the term is, but it, it feels less and less linear and more and more like decisions are being made to represent things or, sure. you Absolutely. know, whatever, however you want to conceive of that as an audience member. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found myself not understanding some of it. It's not just that they were difficult, but I wasn't quite sure why they were happening the way they were. And I sometimes find that very interesting. We've co- we've covered directors on this show where uh, th- th- what's happening might seem alienating, and yet I'm interested in it you know maybe maybe this isn't a fair analog but but someone that comes to mind is like uh uh david lynch right like Mm -hmm. certain david lynch decisions feel specifically to fuck with the audience like that he's pushing (laughs) the audience to some extent but i don't find that alienating i find it engaging you know in this film there are moments where i'm like i don't know why this is happening and i but it doesn't feel random it doesn't feel silly uh, though there is humor in this film, and I think knowing that he is an analog for the director, I do feel like the director is leveling a certain amount of self-loathing onto the picture. Because while you know, while there's elements of the the character Alex that are endearing, he's also kind of an idiot, you know, and he's he's kind of um, he's kind of. Um, self-important and says things he's very very, self-important yes and he says things in very dramatic ways that Mm -hmm. aren't very intelligent like he thinks he's revealing the world the the part there's a part at which he's trying to confess his love to uh is it marionette uh marielle marielle sorry he's he's attempting to convince his love confess his love to marielle and then he brings in his ex-girlfriend and then suggests that they're going to live in some sort of weird thruple (laughs) where he's like an atom going between the two of them and it's it's not convincing at all nothing on marielle's face suggests you're winning me over with your intense speech it the whole thing is falling flat but he just trucks forward and and all of that feels humorous but um, I don't feel that the decisions that are being made that are not direct or, or perhaps they are artistic slash aesthetic decisions, I don't feel like they're without weight. I feel like they're intentional. They're, they're supposed to mean something. And I don't always feel like I speak the language of the movie, if that makes sense. I don't, no, always, totally. fe- I don't always feel like I understand the images. If the images are part of the communication, there are times where I'm not sure. So a great example would be they're on a bus together. Uh, she's wearing a a head thing that basically looks like Joan of Arc. She looks like Joan of Arc. Yeah, very much. They're so, on yeah, the yeah. bus, and as they're talking, an amazing effect, an amazing piece of filmmaking. A bus pulls up behind them with her X on it, staring mm-hmm. at them, and then they pull away. A- amazing bit of filmmaking, like for a movie of this budget and this size. It's almost like impressive. It's not a special effect, but it feels that way. The clarity with which he's in the bus behind them. But why is he there? I have no idea. It's one of those things where I'm like, this is unbelievable. I don't know what that's meant to communicate to me other than to be a really cool image. And maybe it is just an image, but I just get the vibe, Doug, that there's more thought going on here, whether those are references to other directors, the way that some critics seem to suggest, or whether there is a 
language of cinema being played with in the imagery, it just doesn't always connect with me. And I found that a teeny bit alienating, but that doesn't make the film unpleasant. I still overall enjoyed the film, but of his films that I've seen, it's perhaps my least favorite. I mean, there are a few stylized moments like that in the film. It's not a film that kind of, uh, I wouldn't call it necessarily surreal or no, fantasy-like, no. but there's a moment fairly early on where Alex encounters a couple that are embracing, and as he's watching them and kind of staring at them, they just start to spin in a very kind of of, of um, not <laughs> real way, <laughs> and he's he's just like watching their embrace and their kissing, and then he like throws money at them afterwards <laughs> as a way like it's some sort of performance just for him. I mean, I guess, again, I don't want to interpret necessarily, but the idea that as the, in terms of on the bus and, and with the lover behind them, you know, the idea that as they are connecting together, as their relationship might grow stronger, that she is like literally and emotionally pulling away from her ex-lover, right? Who she obviously is just um, already kind of broken from. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of interpretations you could probably take from that. I wonder what the interpretation of him getting off that bus because he has to pee and then playing pinball for... 10 minutes straight. <laughs> what are we supposed to take away from that? What does pinball represent in the context of the movie? I don't know. Um, I mean, I'll tell you what, I was watching this going, is this an early inter interpretation of ADHD? Like he's, <laughs> he just goes in there to piss. And before you know it, he's hyper-focused on this pinball game. And it's like, why does that even happen? I don't know. It's, it's just, but that allows him, I mean, is the whole thing an excuse so that he can miss the train in the first place? Yeah. I mean, I think absolutely it is. And, and there is something to that where the person that is playing pinball that he's like switching back and forth for. Uh, with he's like he says he's going to go home to his mistress and lay in her arms and things like that which is you know the kind of maybe it's a reminder of what he actually wants what's important in life is to have these connections but i mean i'm glad that you brought up that in his confession of love he is still so hung up on the girl who has just left him that he wants he basically thinks hey if i fall in love with you and if we are in love with each other maybe that will impress her enough that she will return to me but i don't want just her i want you as well well, and it's he he's also letting the subtext out, right? Like yeah. anyone who's watching his interaction with this girl might not anyone, but a lot of people would have the inclination. He's only interested in her because he's so mad at his ex. And here yeah. is this mm -hmm. new shiny object, really, to distract him. But then he says it out loud. He gives it away. You know, <laughs> he says the thing that we're all thinking is the subtext of their relationship and makes it part of his fantasy. It's like it's it's again, it's not that there aren't brilliant moments in the movie, but there is a, a there is a bit of an interpretive style to this thing that I don't always feel I understand or or I comprehend why things are happening. In uh, Chuck Bowen's review for Boy Meets Girl on Slate, he refers to it as a sketchbook movie. He says, as Carrick's appears to have thrown every idea he had at the time into it. Do you think that that's accurate? I mean, one of the things about this film is that it's kind of, uh, as you said, it, it, it becomes more loose as it goes, uh, and, but it does seem full of ideas. I mean, I think that's fair to some extent. I mean, it's hard. It feels a little harsh to me. I wonder if um, it is true that there are too many elements. You know, it's it's like he's on a cooking show and he's trying to make something that's like a <laughs> Mexican, Asian, uh, European hybrid dish, and it's just too many things in one thing. That's I should mention, by the way, that is not. I don't think in the context of that review, it's meant to be a negative. Okay. Well, but yeah. it, it, it feels to me like it could be seen that way. Yeah, certainly, like, like it's a, overstuffed. Yeah, I, I don't know that it's overstuffed, but I did feel like I'm not sure all of the elements serve the purpose. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I'm not inclined to think he's just showing off, you know, or just trying to make references for references' sake or try tricks for tricks' sake. Like, I, I think everything is meant to serve a purpose, but I'm not sure all of it does you know and and but I, again this is this feels like maybe a failing on my part as a as a viewer more than the film itself but it is his first one so you know maybe maybe his style improves over time one of the other comparisons that review makes is to jim jarmusch who's um strangers in paradise i believe is his first film that came out the same year as this or, or maybe the year before um but that film you know the thing about jarmusch's films is that they tend to be a little slow and they're very kind of slice of life type material but I don't think they ever get as um, 
obscure as the, f- the second half of this movie gets. Certainly the first half feels like that, where you see Alex kind of live in the city, you know, him going out at night, him bringing his tape player so he can walk around and just take in the sights and take in the life, uh, but also kind of be living a very meandering sort of lifestyle. We already mentioned that that you had a little bit, we I should say we, because I agree with you on this, that we had a little bit more difficulty kind of getting a handle on the movie after the the two lovers or the two the boy and the girl um connect up did you enjoy one half more than the other yes i do think so especially because um we do see a bit more of like the city and the environment when alex is kind of um wandering a bit more and and doing different tasks but i feel I mean, even at the beginning of the movie, it opens with this woman who's running away and calling from her car, which, by the way, was like a fun moment for me because I'm like, what exactly is happening right now? I kind (laughs) of forgot about those car phones that looked like actual phones. Yeah. And I thought, is this are we in a magical realism territory? (laughs) Like, what's happening? Um, And then when she throws all the art in the water, like just starting there with the kid yelling, we're, we're already in a place that feels, again, this isn't a surreal film, but it it's certainly not cinema verite either, Doug. Like no. it's, there's the framing choices, the way that we see things, even the way he confronts Tomas and then throws him in the river. All of that feels mm, like a bit of a caricature. And so uh, while I did enjoy it, I, I don't, I feel like from the beginning I'm asking the question of like, okay, so what exactly is happening here? Which is good. I don't I, I, I'd prefer that to a film where I'm uninterested in why things you know, like so, sometimes films everything is so on the surface that you're bored because you basically know what's gonna happen. Like sure. there's nothing yeah, to yeah, watch. Yeah. Absolutely. Really. And so I appreciate that this film isn't that. But but the feeling I had that maybe I was not fully in the know on the movie does get more uh, exacerbated as the movie goes on. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And I like the idea that perhaps some of the material towards the second half of the film can only be represented in these ways, you know, Uh, especially the climax of the film, that that sort of uh, action should be seen in a way that feels almost indirect. You know what I mean? Like maybe that's a good thing, but I, I don't know. I just didn't connect with it, you know? I have a question for you that's going to be rather difficult, Liam, both for you and for me, which is that in the copy of the movie that we both watched, occasionally there are just black frames in it. Right. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. I At first I thought it may that may have been a technical error. I mean, this is a very low-budget movie shot on black and white. But as it, the movie goes on and they continue to happen, they seemed more and more like a stylistic choice. What what did you take away from those black frames? And that, I mean, quite honestly, Doug, that was the first indication that maybe I didn't understand everything that yeah. was happening. Yeah, in the movie. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't. I was. I was looking for. I was looking for them as an interpretive uh, cue that maybe. Um, they happen at specific moments as an indicator of a break. Sure. You know, so like watching this movie more and given more time to pontificate, I think I could come up with an interpretive framework for how they work as a, as a break in the action to mess with you, you know, it, it, almost in a Godard sense of reminding you you're even watching a movie sure. and, mm-hmm. and breaking your feeling of immersion into the mm. narrative. Um, right, right. But do they also have a thematic, like they happen at specific times? I don't know. This is the first time I've seen the movie. They certainly were disruptive, um, and they didn't make the movie easier to watch. But I, again, with every decision like that, um, there's probably a reason why, even though this is a new filmmaker who perhaps is still honing his technique – there's probably a reason he went to the trouble of doing that. That wasn't a that wasn't, I think, a mistake. But I don't know that I have an understanding of why those exist yet. Um, and I, I think the problem here, Doug, is that am I curious enough about Boy Meets Girl 
to <laughs> do the work to figure out all the, the my own interpretation of all of these decisions that are made. I don't know that I am. I, I don't know that maybe this particular star-crossed lover's narrative is for me, though I do love the prominent placement of Holiday in Cambodia by the dead Kennedys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Liam, have you ever seen the movie If, the Malcolm McDowell movie directed I have by not. Lindsay Anderson? No. It's really good. It's about this like revolt at a school, like at a at a boarding school in the UK. And most of the movie is shot in black and white, and then there are shots in color, and they just kind of go back and forth. And when I was a teenager seeing this movie for the first time, I was like, This is brilliant. Look, they're trying to show like the the difference between how these people view the world and like I was doing all these interpretations. And then I read later that it was just that they didn't have enough like they couldn't afford to shoot it all in color, so they just shot some in black and white and shot some in color. I've read since then that maybe that's not even the real interpretation of what, like that's not the real reason it happened. But it's just so funny that we might have just been talking about the reason for this when it really could have been a technical issue. Maybe the printing of the film sure. got fucked up, right? It, it is. <laughs> it's one of those things where you think of those like comedy sketches of people arguing about a, a shoe on the floor of an art gallery. And then you find out it's just someone's shoe and not part of the gallery at all. Um, Liam, this movie is in part, if not mostly about desperations and the yearnings of youth. We are old men who have mostly settled down. Do you think that we may have trouble connecting with some of the material in this because we are not young? Oh, 100%. I mean, there is a feeling of nostalgia to it. I don't know mm-hmm. that I've ever made a speech quite like the one that Alex makes, but have I gone to a party to see a young lady and perhaps been too intimidated to say anything most of the time? And then when I finally get a chance to interact with her, been awkward? Sure. Now, the yeah. level or of said intensity. Too much, certainly. <laughs> oh, yeah. The level of intensity he brings to this interaction and his interactions with everyone else in the movie is alien to me. I wasn't quite this self serious, but I was a bit self serious. And I'm sure I said stuff that were it to be brought up now, I would be thoroughly embarrassed by. Sure. Yeah. I, I think everyone could relate to that particular aspect of it. I do want to ask you, though, you know, it's funny. We're talking about this black and white. French movie that we have trouble completely grasping all of what it's trying to say. But it's also a funny movie. There's a lot of comedy in this movie. In fact, what kind of genre would you consider it? Would you consider it like a dark comedy or a or a um, maybe a dramatic romantic comedy? I mean, I, I think it's the sort of movie that I have trouble classifying as far as genre. Uh, I do think it's probably more of a dark comedy. Um but again, the ending is pretty serious, yeah. so it's yeah, hard and, and to Yeah, and I think it's meant to be taken very serious, absolutely. The humor, I mean, to be clear, the movie's funny, um, but some, for me at least, some of its funniest parts might be second layer. Like, it's not that uh, Denis Levant is walking around busting out jokes or one-liners, right? But there are certain moments that are so ridiculous that I found myself giggling, you know? I think about when he's like he's getting the gift for his ex where he's just stealing records yes. and sliding them into his jacket until yes. his jacket rips. Yes. And even, <laughs> even with him delivering them where he's hiding by the door and she comes out. I mean, just a lot of kind of, I guess amusing might be the better word than, than straight out funny. It's a very kind of, it's, it's not like laugh out loud humor for sure. Sure. I mean, even some of the the conversations at the party, and uh, the the you know this the 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 uh, the man trying to connect with him about film, you know, mm-hmm. and him just not listening Walk. to anything, <laughs> <laughs> just ignoring them completely. That's I, but that's one of those moments that I thought was both funny, but also probably thematically important. But I wasn't sure, sure. I completely understood everything that was going on in that scene. I mean, I think that the tonal shifts are part of that idea of that sketchbook type thing, though, right? Yes. Like that yes. part where he's in that room with all the children trying to use the phone, and then he turns on the video, and then the video turns into the, the person who uh, who ran the party, like like crying about the fact that she her brother died, and then you don't even find out who the person she's crying about is until later when she talks about that she has this psychic connection or had it with her brother who then passed away. There's just a lot going on, actually, when we, when we walk through the plot a little bit. 
Yeah, the idea, I mean, I think the easiest way for us to explain it is them as two recently jilted lovers who find each other at a party. But actually, there's so much else going on um, in ways that feel, like you said, well, it's it's it gets to the level almost of screwball-y, right? Like, hmm. just the random, I mean, you know, a couple times when her ex shows up, it feels almost silly. Some of the dialogue from the party hostess feels like bordering on silly ridiculous. Yeah. But then other parts of the movie do feel very serious. And and everything in the film feels intentional, you know, um, even if maybe it wasn't. The vibe of the film is like, I'm doing something here, and this is all part of my intention of what I'm trying to like uh, uh, tell you right now. One of the reasons that it's easy to watch this without, you know, even when we're not necessarily connecting with all the material, that it's still a film that's pretty easy to watch is because of the photography. I've already mentioned that it's in black and white. It's by uh, the late Jean-Yves Escoffier, who was um, Leo's character's usual cinematographer until his death. Very beautiful imagery in this. Uh, there's a there's a lot of like kind of standout moments. It's it because it is kind of naturalistic, even though it's not cinema verite. It 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 isn't that the images are necessarily like really specifically composed, but a lot of like memorable images. I always think about at the very end when the room is flooded and we see the foot, uh, the feet walking across the the floor with the black images that already look like the water looks like blood or or like paint or something like that on the ground. What did you think of the photography of this film? I mean, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful movie, and and um, uh, it's it's interesting to look at, even at the parts where I'm not sure what's happening. Everything I'm looking at is, uh, you know, uh, well lit, well framed. Everything looks really nice, but that also f- adds to this feeling of intention. Nothing mm-hmm. feels like we just ran into a room with a camera and figured it yes. out. Yes, you know. Mm-hmm. Liam, do you have an interest in French New Wave cinema? Like, is this something that you would like to do a deeper dive in? Or is it just something where it's like, oh, I recognize it's a blind spot, and I'll catch up on some of it, or maybe I'll catch up on a lot of it later, but it's not something that you have any specific interest in? No, I think I am. I mean, I have watched a few of the most well-known things, you know, um, including a but but there's just so much possibility there. So I've watched a couple of Truffaut. I've watched a couple of Godard. I've watched a couple Agnes Varda. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then past that point, I have a two-watch list of maybe like three or four movies that I want to get to eventually. But I haven't done the research to really figure out like what is utterly essential. Like what is, what are the films? Because, you know, with any kind of uh, artistic movement, right? people become enamored of the term that they've come up with. Right. They just start throwing it around. And in reality, if you watch or engage with all of the things that fall under that, you realize it's too broad that actually they just started to, it just started to get used for all kinds of things. So if I'm going to spend the time with it, I want to be very specific because as you know, we watch a lot of stuff uh, mm-hmm. and I just haven't done the work. Uh, but I, but I want to, I, 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 uh, I don't know that it's something I have to do. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't feel obligated, but I am interested because what I've seen, I very much like. Now, is it possible I might skip the idea of a movement and just focus on specific directors? Yeah, I mean, I very much enjoy the Agnes Varda films I've seen, and I know that there's a bunch of later work that uh, that doesn't all fall into what people would consider French New Wave. And so for me, might I focus just on her for a while and then jump to another director? That might be more interesting than saying, what are the six to ten essential movies of this movement? You know what I mean? Right. Um, that, that might be more worth my time. And it's something I've wanted to do and just, you know, I get so distracted by TV and comic books, Doug. I don't always do the extra film work I should be doing. <laughs> I mean, who has the time, really? But I mean, it's, I mean, we are in a lucky position, as I like to say a lot, in that, hey, if we want to check out those movies, we can check them out at any time, right? I mean, there's, uh, whether it be on streaming, whether it be on, on DVDs, Blu-rays, it's good that, you know, Agnes Varga's entire you know, collection of her work is available, that you can easily check out 
Melville and Goddard. And I mean, just there's it's just very easily available in a way that it wouldn't have been when I was, you know, a teenager where I might have wanted to get into that, just had no way, no access to it. Right. But I, you know, one of the things that happens, I don't know if you feel this way, is sometimes with access comes a lack of urgency. You know, oh, sure. if, this, if the screening down the street was your only time to see it, you might make more of an effort. And so because I do have this huge access to things over streaming, let alone the ability to buy stuff if I really want to, sometimes I just don't. And that is fine. I'm not judging at me or anyone else for that. But there are certain cases where I think I should probably do that because I think it'll be rewarding for me to make the effort. It, it's it happens all the time where I get like semi obsessed with seeing a movie and then I get it and I put it in a little vault and then I never watch it. Right. Uh, and it really, it's the immediacy of new movies and being part of the conversation regarding those new movies that, you know, keep me interested in watching things, you know, as soon as possible. But if I didn't, yeah, I'm paralyzed both with the excess of choice and with the fact that there's always something new coming. You know, it's funny right before, the pandemic happened. So this would have been back in 2019. I think I said, you know, can we all just stop making movies for like five years? Give everyone time to catch up. And basically, we had almost two years of not no movies, but things slowed down a lot. And Jesus, I just got more and more buried in the movies I've been meaning to watch. Yeah, I feel the same way. I, I really thought pandemic, this is going to be my time to catch up on a bunch of old stuff. And it didn't really happen. I think for a lot of us, we were too stressed to want to focus on some like hard yeah. to absorb movie that we weren't sure if we liked or not. And we were we were struggling with the idea that maybe we would never see movies in a theater again. Which, is also, <laughs> which by the way, I have not seen a movie in a theater, Liam, still since the beginning of the pandemic. Well, you're more disciplined than I am. Not disciplined, poor, but also... Uh, it's funny because like there have been movies where the spectacle would have really benefited, right? Like the Top Gun Maverick film and um, and I guess like superhero movies, but I'm not that interested in those. But like there are movies that I should see in the cinema, but I, I will say that the pull isn't as strong and the window between uh, theatrical release and home release being so small these days means that I just, I don't mind waiting. It's, I don't, I, though I love theater, like I love the theatrical experience more than anything. But I only have one theater in the area in which I live, and it's a multiplex, and the experience is never going to be that great if I go to it. And I just don't have any control when I'm in there. I don't know. I feel very mixed about the whole thing. I just basically need to set up a home theater <laughs> in a way that I can just enjoy my, my, uh, my movies in the way that I want to enjoy them. I still value the experience, but I think you're right. It can be a mixed bag, and that is a risk you have to decide if you want to take or not. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Liam, I want to talk a little bit about the ending of Boy Meets Girl. Uh, so this will be a spoiler. Um, so at the end of the film, this couple, you know, uh, they have met, they have interacted. There's obviously some sort of connection there, even if Alex is trying to push some sort of throuple situation. He has uh, meant to go off to military service. So he's on a train heading to that. He, uh, as we've already mentioned, he has to use the bathroom. He gets off. Maybe he uses it, uses it as an excuse. He gets to a phone booth. He tries calling Marielle, um, and she doesn't pick up because she thinks it's her ex-lover calling. And then he runs to her. Uh, she's, she's clearly suicidal, as we see from images of her. He enters the room from behind her. Again, she thinks that uh, he might be her ex-lover. He runs to her and embraces her. And we discover, actually, after after this is shown through a flashback, that she had a pair of scissors that she was going to commit suicide with. And by embracing her, he has stabbed her in the stomach, likely killing her at the end. We don't know that for sure, but certainly it seems that way. What did you think of the ending of Boy Meets Girl? I think it's it's hard, Doug, because I want to take it on its own merits and say... Sure. You know, it's it's a bit of an artistic interpretation, and you could maybe take it not as literal if you wanted to, right? That that in his seeking her and utilizing her for his own purposes, he has, in essence, sort of not taken seriously her own suffering. You know, right. he sees the wound that has been left in her and seeks a fellow sufferer. Uh, but is not taking seriously the depth of her pain, right? Right. Or he just literally walks in on her, possibly 
ending her life and in fact in his embrace of her uh makes that uh that death more real that's that also could be what happens if i take it just totally literally and i don't think about the respect i have for the rest of the movie it's kind of a dumb ending honestly like there's a certain level of i don't know if you feel this way but for me sometimes there's a certain level of escalation of seriousness you know She's mm-hmm. gonna she's gonna kill herself, but then he hugs her and he kills her. That feels like a dumb campfire story or the sort of thing like someone would tell you in high school that would really fucking bum me. I got this bummer story. It's so crazy. Or or it even sounds to some extent like a poem you would write as a goth teenager or even sure, like write, write a metal record. This is the plot of your metal record, is actually this something like this. Um and to that extent, I'm kind of turned off by it, uh, quite honestly. Um, but if I don't, if I don't take a too critical of a viewpoint, I think it could work. I, I don't think it ruins the movie, but a part of me just has trouble taking it seriously. And if I think about it too hard, I think that's some corny, that's some cornball stuff right there. You know, the striking imagery helps a lot with it. Yes, it and looks beautiful. It looks beautiful, and I do think that you can that the interpretive, especially because there's been some, there, especially in the last half hour, there's a lot of kind of janky chronology and a feeling of of um, nonlinearness. So you can probably make that interpretation and it's be very fair. It reminds me a little bit of the original ending for Clerks, the Kevin Smith movie. Where the lead character just gets shot, and, and you're supposed to be left shaken after this, you know, really raunchy comedy up to that point, and everyone in the entire fucking world who saw it said that is a terrible ending, that is try hard, that is very cringe, and then he changed it, and everyone's much happier, and now he's fucking basically did not evolve for the last thirty years. But anyway, right. even aside from that, you know that this feels like the kind of ending that someone in their early twenties would make for something like this in a literal way. And I'm with you. It's not that I maybe cringe would be too strong of a word, but it's certainly the idea that, oh, shit, I'm going to shock them out of their, you know, their their life. I'm going to shock them. So when those credits come up, you're going to be like, what did I just see? When really I would just kind of it's not like I gave out a groan, but I was certainly like, oh, OK. <laughs> it, I, it, it, it's because I did have a connection with those characters. There is that sense of loss that I felt at the end of it, but I also felt that it was a little bit, as you said, corny. Yeah, it doesn't ruin the movie, and I and I think part of the problem, Doug, maybe uh, maybe this is unfair, but I think part of it is our interpretation of this now, right? So in 1984, right, um, and maybe this isn't true either, but I wonder. Let's let me put soft hands on it. I wonder if it's possible that in 1984, this feels like less well trodden ground. That like sure. the 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 utilization of suicide as a theme, especially among young people, yeah, feels yeah. feels less like obvious and 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 cliche and more like yeah you know okay this you know that 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 there is this sort of edge of youthful intensity that can kind of spill over into death and and perhaps the i mean what you really get in the movie is alex has romanticized the sort of pain that she's actually going through yeah Mm -hmm. you know and for him it's all posture and for her it's actual feeling of of uh of of uselessness of a lack of meaning a lack of purpose you know that that she's actually experiencing what he's kind of romanticizing i think all that's there but for whatever reason maybe it's unfair of us to to see it this way but for me doug i can't see that ending and not go okay all right all right you know it just it feels more than it needs to be it 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 feels like a hat on a hat quite honestly it it does feel consistent though with how the characters react to things which is that everything is life or death right and the way that when you're in your early 20s you're like i'm loving so hard i'm never gonna love like this again right that when when a breakup happens it's like this is the end of the world her suicidal thoughts i mean they in modern times we would think of it connected to potential mental illness but in this movie it's very much supposed to be like a response to what she's going through with the end of her relationship and just the idea that well if the main character is supposed to be an analog to the director and he feels these feelings so strongly, then of course everyone has like to die at the end, even if both characters don't necessarily die. I know it, it feels immature, 
But it also sure. feels real to that age group of a young director making a movie like that. So, you well, know, that's what I was thinking is that it feels sincere to the film. Yes. Mm-hmm. And if I think of it on those terms, I think it actually works. And the way that it's portrayed is a best case scenario. It's a fucking beautiful sequence. Yeah. And I think it really is the ideal situation if you're going to tell that story. Um, and that's why I suspect you brought up earlier our age. But I mean our age, not just in our literal age, but also the age that we are in. Um, the the theme at play here has become so manipulative. It's become mm-hmm. such a such an easy easy uh, thing to pull out that it's it's hard. To, I think for especially if if, if you showed this to um, someone maybe even a little bit younger than us, they might find it to be like, oh, of course. The then uh, suicide. Come on, you know it. Yeah. It, it mm-hmm. feels like such well trodden ground, which is unfair to this movie on its own terms. Yeah, though you brought up a word that I, I don't think I've used up to this point, which is actually really important for this movie, is that it's very sincere. This is not a movie yes, that yes. trades in irony. So if you're being sincere, you risk, run the risk of uh, getting a little corny sometimes. Well, and but sincerity it, is back, Doug, so maybe it is time for people to rediscover this movie. And in fact, that goes right into my final question, which is would you recommend Boy Meets Girl to either you know fans of film that you know or fans of Leo's Carrick's as a director? To fans of Leo's Carrick's, I would definitely recommend it because yeah. I think that there are themes of sincerity uh, throughout his films. I think this is like a running theme through some of his stuff. And while as he gets older, he's more and more willing to play with representation and irony, um, I do think there's this feeling of emotions throughout that I, that is worth considering and starting at this place. Uh, to fans of, I don't know, French film, drama in general, uh, I I would actually put a little bit of a trigger warning on it, it, just in the sense that like I think it's very artistic and representational, and I don't think it would hurt someone. But it's always worth saying because I think that um, the ideation of uh, of ending one's life can be mm-hmm. really difficult as a subject sure. for people. Absolutely. And so it's worth saying. I also would put then uh, a different, maybe not content or trigger warning but a different sort of warning for some people who if you are a person for whom any super intense level of sincerity bums you out there are people for whom they can't listen to an emo record because it's just Mm -hmm. it's too much on the surface for them keep that shit to yourself i have a friend who he he has friends by he's a musician and he has friends by records he won't listen to the record because he's like it's too sincere it's too upfront they're laying their whole heart out. I don't want to fucking know. They just can't right. do it. It's too much mm-hmm. for them. For that sort of person, they're gonna fucking hate this movie. Even with all the art, with with all the aesthetics and the artistry and the and the even the subterfuge of representing certain ideas in maybe a abstract way. This is still a, still a fucking sincere movie. Even to the extent that the movie is mocking itself. It's mocking its character. It's mocking its character in a way that feels very much sincere so that i feel like if that's not your vibe this is going to be a hard movie for you in my opinion yeah no i think that's very fair and i think that sincerity is something that we kind of got to really put on the table you need to be able to appreciate and the fact that this movie really does seem to love its characters quite a bit uh which which is meant to make that ending all the more tragic liam we're not going to be doing as of right now another episode of Forgotten Gems. We might pop up with it in the future, especially if there's anything uh, in particular that we've been interested in talking about that we don't have an ability to fit into another show. But if people want to check out more episodes of Forgotten Gems, our entire catalog, and maybe even push us to record more, uh, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, they can definitely find our back catalog on cinemasmorgasbord.com. Uh, but if they're looking for our latest episodes, as well as a whole family of other podcasts, we're always posted over at cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. Us, uh, Twitch of the Death Nerve, Carnage Report, Shameless Picture Show, Horror Business, a whole family of podcasts connected together, uh, as well as some writing, a merch store. Hopefully, eventually, we'll have some shirts up there. That'd be cool. Uh, so head over to both those sites. They can, of course, follow us on twitter at cinema smorg that's s-m-o-r-g or they can follow cinepunks on twitter facebook and instagram at c-i-n-e-p-u-n-x 
Yeah, I think you covered all of it. Usually I would say the social media stuff, but you did it, Liam. If you are enjoying what you're hearing or enjoying any of our other Cinema Smokers Word podcasts, why don't you leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice? Or why don't you tell a friend? Tell them that we're out there. Tell them that there are podcasts devoted to such diverse subjects as Carol Kane, Jackie Chan, Alejandro Jodorowsky, Paul Bartel, and more over at cinemasmorgasbord.com. But for now, we're going to say goodbye to Forgotten Gems. We'll be back very soon with a different Cinema Smorgasbord podcast. Good night, everyone. Night night. Thank you.